0: And I actually have sitting in front of me um, a framed cheque and sits on my desk and it reminds me every day about a very valuable lesson. That cheque is for $200,000 and there's a plaque that sits underneath the framed cheque which
1: says, You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 53 of the show. Thanks for joining me. I hope you are well. I'm doing just fine. I've got part two of my chat with property developer Don O'Rourke coming up. But before we get to that, I thought I would share with you that I just got back from a short trip to South Africa, where I spent a week in Johannesburg with past guest Dr. John D. Martini, which was great. While I was there, I did a tour of the township of Soweto, which is where the uprising against apartheid started in 1976. There are around 4 million people who live in an area around 200 square kilometres, so it is very, very dense. It was a fascinating and humbling tour as I visited shanty towns made up of small tin sheds with no running water or electricity, and filled with people desperate for an opportunity to work and improve their lives. I thought about the so-called urban planning problems that people complain about in Australia, and how good most of us have it. I've posted a video on the Property Developer Podcast Facebook page, if you're interested in seeing how some people in Soweto live. I think it's quite eye-opening. I did enjoy my trip to Soweto and was grateful to the people who showed me around and let us into their homes, and I came home with a renewed appreciation of my own circumstances. Back at home on the project front, following on from Council issuing a notice of decision to grant us a planning permit, the 28-day period to lodge an appeal with the planning tribunal has expired, so I am waiting to hear if anyone has objected, and if not, we should get a planning permit in the next few weeks. On the other project, we have updated our drawings and I'm just waiting for a waste management plan and a sustainable design report to be finished before our town planner drafts his planning report to accompany our response to council's RFI. I'm guessing it'll be a few weeks before all that is completed and our submission goes back in and we see what council has to say. And remember, if you are interested in learning how to develop property, then please email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com and I can send you some details about the mentoring program you can take part in. There have been a couple more people sign up recently for the program, so it's exciting to see people taking control of their future prosperity. Okay, on with the show. In this episode, we wrap up the conversation with seasoned developer Don O'Rourke. Don is the executive chairman of Consolidated Properties Group. Consolidated is one of Australia's leading development companies with a current workbook of more than $2 billion. It is a privately owned company that has delivered more than 200 projects over the past 35 years. If you missed the first part of the discussion, then go back to episode 52 and catch up, as Don shared lots of gold with us about how he got started in the business, the key projects they did along the way, and lots of tips on succeeding at developing. In part two, we continue talking about the lessons learned along the way, including the importance of identifying and mitigating risks, adapting to the current credit market, and some of the projects that didn't quite go according to plan. Don will also share a tale of a $200,000 check and why it is an important reminder to avoid legal litigation. So let's pick up the discussion from where I was asking Don how he maintains and grows his equity base. And so how do you maintain that equity base if you're looking to expand? Because don't you have to keep tapping into it?
0: Yes. We we constantly have to tap into it, Justin. So, so our view with equity is um, th- there's two points to it. First of all, our own money as versus external, we're first money into a project and we're last money out. So we need to say that to the investors that you know we don't get our money out until you've got all your money out with your return. Um, so that's the first thing: first money in, last money out. The second principle is that we won't use investors' money in the early phases of a project where we're investigating um, and working out what the project might look like. Um, You know, quite often projects go awry through the investigation phase, and you can only use your own money to do that. You can't use external money to do that. We bring the investors in once projects are de-risked. And we can see a clear way home across each of the project risks so that money comes in later and we leave our capital in the projects that we we, uh, have investigated with that's again a vote of i guess confidence in the projects for us to give our investors comfort if we don't deliver for our investors we won't get further capital it's very very simple so we need to make sure we focus on their needs
1: and when you say your is largely outsourced, what do you mean by that?
0: So once we get a project to a point where it's de-risked, so typically we'll have a site under option, we'll have a, a, an approval from the local authority, we'll have the design and the builder sorted out and we'll have some pre-sales or pre-leasing. We can then bring some equity in. Uh, we then go to the professional managers uh, like CVS Lane um, and CBS Lane will do a significant due diligence on our project and they'll then bring in um, their investors, which cover family offices, high net worths and institutional. They'll craft up the product that goes into the equity piece and they'll manage that equity piece on behalf of those investors. Um, so that's what I mean by equity is outsourced.
1: And then, what about that initial capital that you're talking about? Your working capital to get things going. How do you maintain a base of that when you're, particularly when you're a bit smaller and you're looking to try and get bigger?
0: Look, it is very hard to keep up with that capital piece because you need two pieces of capital in that that phase. You need um, the investigation funds, and you also need the co-invest piece. And now. Sometimes you can roll the investigation fund into the co invest. The co invest is the equity that you need to sit beside the investors to give them comfort that you've got skin in the game. Um, So it is difficult in an expanding business keeping that up, keeping that equity piece up. Clearly, the answer is that you have to sell things as you go along. Um, That's the only way you can do it by selling a project cashing out, getting the development profit, and then reinvesting that profit back into that um, initial capital piece.
1: Yeah, and so, you obviously did that early on, but do you retain some stock now and have an asset base for the
0: business? Yes, we do, yeah. yeah. We Our shopping center business is basically around build and hold, um, and our residential, obviously, is built to sell, so one side of the business supports the other side. Okay, very good.
1: And you touched on the changing capital markets. What's your view on the current state of play with lending in Australia? It's definitely changed over the last year or two.
0: So I think right at this moment, um, we've got the perfect storm happening um, in the property market, particularly the residential market. The Hain Inquiry has seen the banks all acting like deers caught in the headlight. Um, and what that means is decisions are much slower, they're much more conservative on LVRs, they're much more conservative on interest rate cover, all those sorts of measures. Um, that has given rise to an opportunity for the non-bank lenders and we've seen groups step into that um, spot to fill the needs that the banks have, have created by leaving their market. So, you know, CBS Lane, Qualitas, Wingate, Those sorts of groups have stepped in to provide alternative sources of um, development debt and equity. Um, At the other end of the spectrum, the consumers, again, through the Hain inquiry outcomes, find it much more difficult to get loans from the banks. You know They've got to now fill out detailed forms about how much they bet at the TAB, how much they spend on going out once a week, those sorts of things. It's a much more difficult process for them. And that means that market has dried up as well. If you then overlay that with um, China stopping its residents exporting capital, Indonesia doing the same, um, the federal government tightening its uh, regulations around APRA, um, the states imposing higher stamp duties, um, there are a lot of factors working against the property market, which really is in direct contrast with what's actually happening at the coalface with the property market. Now, what I mean by that is we have basically full employment in the Australian economy, we've got 3% plus GDP growth. Um, So we've got a really good macro. We've had 27 years of unbroken uh, prosperity and we've got positive population growth, which means there is demand for new housing. Only one year in Australia's history, and that's last year, did we actually produce the number of dwellings that are required for the country? It's been in deficit essentially every other year. So there's demand for new dwellings. Um, aside from a couple of oversupply situations with apartments, um, basically our stock is full and and is yielding um, is yielding quite acceptably. Um, but the credit crunch, which is the summary of all those other um, uh, factors is creating the problems we're seeing in the market now. Now how's that evidenced? Um, we've seen house price falls in Melbourne and Sydney uh, to, and, uh, and the buy the market is just freezing up. So we a very very interesting situation occurring right at this moment. Um, and I, and I just I just want to sort of recap fundamentally the property market is okay but it has been battered by the finance market. That, that's our take on things.
1: Yes, and, th- and what's your thoughts on the way through, I mean amount of your experience, what, what are you looking to do?
0: Look, I think as a country the, uh, the coalition or Labor need to have a clear roadmap out of the Hain inquiry. Hain reports in February, something's got to be done by government to bring some normalization to the funding markets and, and obviously APRA is its, um, its apparatus to do that although APRA does act independently of the government but um, that, that, that's got to occur uh, in order for supply to return to sustainable levels uh, into the market. Um, for us you know in the micro we just have a look at where we can make a transaction occur where we can get the pre-sales or pre-leasing in a commercial sense. We can get the feasibility stack up with the higher cost of capital because there's more equity uh, involved. If all those numbers work, we'll do transactions through this market. And and you know, right at this moment, we're about to start construction on two shopping centres. We're about to start construction. That's this calendar year um, on and next stage of townhouses at our cornerstone living project. So transactions are possible in this market if um, if the risks are all boxed and, and the commerce makes sense.
1: Uh, we've touched on risk, so it's probably a good time to go there and have a chat about that now. So when you're looking at projects and looking at risk, what's you've obviously got some ideas around how you should best go about doing that.
0: Look, One of our real core philosophies Justin is that property development is actually a business about risk mitigation. Um, So everything we do in in our projects is about identifying and understanding the risks and how those risks might be mitigated. Um, So in a practical sense if you have a look at, at the risks that are in a project first of all the planning risk. So What can you fit on the site? How long will it take to get the approval before you can start construction? All those sorts of things fit into that risk bucket of, um, of approvals. The mitigant to that is very simple. You get a DA. So as I mentioned before, we won't take our projects to investors unless we've got the town planning consent. So that's the first thing. Risk is town planning, mitigation is get a DA. The second thing is delivery and delivery is a combination of design and build. Um, So our way of mitigating that is to get properly qualified builders and architects, engineers and the likes to design the building and then have the builder enter into a lump sum fixed price design and construct contract. So we can say that that risk is being taken by someone that is competent to deliver it and has the balance sheet to underwrite their obligations in terms of that that risk. So tick for town planning, tick for delivery, the third thing is um, takeout risk, and take-out is um, either by way of selling the product, whether it's apartments one by one, or um, a shopping centre, or an office building in one line. Um, and in order to do that, we've got to get pre-sales or pre-leases. So the risk is around takeout. the mitigate is pre-lease and pre-sell, um, and operate um all that piece around valuation, so all those things have to be independently verified by the property valuer, so that uh, if there is a default, we can we can fill the pre-sales or fill the uh, the shops at the same rents. So that's the third risk um, takeout. The fourth risk is capital, and so that in order to mitigate that risk, we need to have the debt and equity in place. Um, and as we talked about previously, the debt's got to be actually. Done through um, a credit-approved um, offer to finance, and the equity has got to be in place through an underwrite by one of the managers. Um, that then leaves the last risk, which is the general market risk, and that's something that you can't sell down to. But the one thing that does mitigate that is making sure the profits are the projects are profitable enough to be able to deal with a failure um, of someone in the process. So. So, if you take a step back and look at a project, you say, this project entails those five risks, we've identified what they are, and we've um, sold those down to competent financial third parties. That's what we mean about development being um, a business of risk mitigation.
1: Yes, capital risk is obviously heightened at the moment in the current lending environment. Have you got any further ideas on how people can mitigate the
0: risks at the moment? Look the the end outcome is you need to have a credit approved um, debt piece and you need to have a credit approved underwritten equity piece in each project so that's that's the two bits of paper you need in order to keep the equity providers happy and the debt providers happy you need to be able to talk to those risks that i mentioned before the feasibility needs to also be able to stand a higher level of equity in it than previous. Like very simply, debt is really cheap, equity is really expensive. The more equity that goes in, um, the more of the profit will be consumed by those equity providers. So the projects have got to have enough margin in it to be able to cope for that higher cost of funding. So those are, I guess, the the two things. Make sure you get your credit approvals, make sure your feasibilities are robust enough to be able to cope for higher um, capital costs. And were there any projects
1: along the way that didn't quite go to plan that you learnt things from?
0: Yeah, no, no, definitely. Just I mean, obviously we keep detailed records of all of the projects we do, and uh, and we're north of 200 projects now. Um, one of the stats we keep is ones that have actually lost money, um, and about one in ten will not perform as it should do. So. In looking back um, over those 40 years, what were the characteristics of those projects that didn't perform properly? Um, one is exuberance. You know, in times of frothy markets, you tend to move away from a laser focus on risk. You know, you get lazy, you get overconfident or whatever, um, and you don't sort of focus on the discipline. So, so that's one thing. Um, the second thing is where you do have um, Financial failures within the team. I mean, we've used Hutchies now for 35 of those 40 years, but one of the, um, the experiences earlier on was having a builder actually go broke um, and having to finish a project off uh, ourselves. That elongates the process, it makes things much more expensive, and the projects sort of move into deficit because of that. Um, the third thing is, again, in, in lax capital times, when the mark around pre-leasing or pre-selling drops is if you just put too many shops into a shopping centre or you overestimate what the rents will be for that last 25% or what the sales will be for the last 25%. The lesson out of that clearly is that the profit in a project always exists in the last 20% of what you do. The first 80% always goes well, the money's made, as I say, with leasing those last shops or or selling those last few apartments in a building. Um, so where we've had problems, we haven't properly um, understood the risks in, that, in the tails of those projects. Um, so we try and learn, or we'll, we do learn, um, we try to uh, implement those lessons on each new project we do, make sure we don't make the same mistake. And what's that
1: like, yourself picking yourself up and dusting yourself off and continuing on?
0: Absolutely. And we incorporate those lessons into our project sign-offs. You know, we have a very lengthy discussion around project risk. Um, You know, another way of looking at it is if you make a loss on a project, you've actually paid for a lesson. So you would be silly to either not take notice of that lesson or not do another project in the same area, incorporating what you've learned. So you sort of Paying for uh, the university of life when you make a loss.
1: <laughs> yes,
0: I've uh, had a couple of
1: those lessons myself, Done, and they're always painful.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> so tell me, looking back over the years, what do you reckon the most difficult decision you've ever had to make in the business is?
0: Uh, look, the, I think the hardest transaction and decision we had to undertake was to buy the property developer, the consolidated properties business, out of the listed Trinity business at the height of the GFC. That was a, you know, very tumultuous time um, throughout the world, and um, and it really required a, a step up for us to say we're going to back ourselves by taking this business out and keeping going. So that, that's probably the most difficult decision. Um, Every day, though, there's a myriad of things we've got to decide on, and um, so, you know, just keeping up with it is, uh, is 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 a challenge.
1: Yeah, I was reading about uh, some of the issues that you faced with the Trinity issue, and you ended up being involved in some legal battles. I was curious how you bounce back from that or the experience of going through that, because generally when you get into business, you yeah. don't think about ending up in court over something.
0: Well, happily, we didn't actually end up in court on that, although it was heading in that direction. Um, and, you know, the, the cool head of the chairman that was appointed to take over from the listing chairman um, saw that pathway, um, you know. The pathway went down was we ultimately did a deal rather than having to go to court. But it was, it was pretty tumultuous and we could have ended up in court. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, just speaking about our court experience, we've only really had one significant court case in our entire uh, commercial history. And, and when I say court, I don't count the Planning and Environment Court. I mean, that that is just sort of part of the approval process. In terms of the commercial court cases, uh, we had a, um, a case with concrete constructions, which ultimately saw that relationship finish around a dispute on on costs. And I actually have sitting in front of me um, a framed cheque and sits on my desk and it reminds me every day about a very valuable lesson. That cheque is for $200,000 and there's a plaque that sits underneath the framed cheque which says a $600,000 dispute, nine years in court, $5 Five million in legal fees, a two hundred thousand dollar outcome. That clerk and that check reminds me of the futility of litigating, and it reminds me never to put myself in a position where I can't do a deal to resolve a dispute.
1: And so have you taken that lesson and used it in other other situations?
0: Absolutely. And in fact, if things get a bit heated, I trot down the hallway and get my little frame check and bring it into the meeting and say, we all need to take a deep breath, this is the other side too, this isn't just our offices, because if we keep arguing, this is what will happen. So, it's a really it's a really sort of well-used talisman in our office, that frame check.
1: <laughs> well, it's pretty stark, isn't <laughs> it, the, uh, the ROI? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, Don, tell me, what do you think you've learned about yourself over the years?
0: Look, I think, um, you know, I'm a confident person and I'm an optimistic person. um, But I'm not so good on the detail, so um, that's my weakness. and, um, And I really need to surround myself with people that are good on the detail and strong enough to stand up for their positions um, because, you know, my optimism and enthusiasm, um, you know, can lead us into areas where we shouldn't go.
1: What, what sort of details do you tend to gloss over?
0: Oh, like I'm ever the optimist on how much we're going to sell things for, how quickly we're going to sell them, how quickly we're going to lease it up, how quickly we'll get the approval, and I'm impatient. I'm always sort of saying, why isn't it done? Um, so it needs... The counterfoil to that of someone saying, here's the evidence that suggests what the rate of sale should be, what the sale prices should be, how long these things take to get through council. Um, and, and that's a really valuable foil to my enthusiasm. <laughs> it, it sounds like you're
1: still enjoying developing and growing your business. Why, why do you think that is?
0: Oh, you know, I really enjoy coming to work. I mean, it's not a hassle getting up in the morning and coming in. Um, those that work here would say I don't do much other than walk around and um, carry on enthusiastically, but I still do enjoy that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 57 years old, Justin, so we've got a 10-year plan, which will see, us, see me transition out of day-to-day roles and, and maybe transition out of the ownership of the business. You know, I think you've got to recognise when your your time's up and I and I don't want to be doing this when I'm 70. I don't think I personally don't think a 70-year-old is sharp enough to uh, to be able to continue in this. Um, but yeah, for the time being, you know, I'm here, I'm enjoying it, we want to keep expanding. Um you know, we've got a really good business at the moment in partnering governments on project, and I can see we want to grow that business. Um, so I'm excited about the future, and I'm excited to be able to meet the challenges that each market, you know, brings.
1: And so, how do you try and stay fresh? I and mean, what things do you do to keep
0: learning?
1: Or you try new things?
0: Look, a couple of things on that. Justin, I mean, we have quite a few young people in our business, so um, so we try and make sure we've got young people and a spread of ages. Um, I'm the oldest one in the business. So surrounding yourself with active, um, interested, uh, enthusiastic people is good, as well as obviously people that um, dot the I's and cross the T's. Um, I'm a big believer in going to things, so I'll go to whatever. Whatever I get invited to, I'll turn up at um, if I can. So just being in the marketplace, going listening to um, people speak. Us doing this podcast is an example of that. You know, remain interested, remain... um, reaching out to people, Um, I read a lot, um, I travel a lot um, and I try and stay current with what trends are in the built environment by by going and looking at things. Um, I try and think about technology although that gets harder and harder as you get older and older Um, but I think you know I, I guess the best I can do with technology is understand what it produces rather than understanding how to actually use it. <laughs> uh,
1: now, if, if, you think, if you could go back in time and talk to yourself, is there a, an, some point that you'd go back to and what would you say to yourself?
0: Well, look, if I could um, start, if I went back to 40 years ago, I would say to myself, Instead of constantly trading things, which was what a developer did, build and sell, build and hold would be a much better strategy. You know, I think um, of all the things we've sold, at what price we sold them for and what they're worth now, there's a complete disconnect. So a build and hold strategy, which is what we we are doing now with our shopping centers, build and hold, um, would would be a better outcome than build and trade.
1: So how do you do that, though?
0: Well, I think you've got to say, if build and hold is the strategy, what is the capital piece that enables that? You know, how do you get enough money to run the office? That's one thing. How do you get enough money to, um, to keep investing in the next deal? How do you get enough equity to put into the hold piece? Um, our solution at present is to have a residential business that, fund, that funds the, the hold piece in the shopping centre business.
1: Okay, so one side of the business funds the other. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. All right, well, we're closing uh, in on the end here. I'm very grateful to you for the time you've spent with us so far. But what would be your top tip for other developers out there that are looking to take their business to the next level?
0: Oh, look, it's a pretty hackneyed sort of comment, but don't be afraid to have a go. Right? Woody Allen has this great saying that 50% of good luck is just turning up. So what I'd say to other people is just turn up and give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? You might fail, but um, you don't want to die wondering.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, when there's a lot of money on the line, there's lots of things that can go wrong. I think that scares a lot of people.
0: (laughs) Well, that's the point, Justin. You've got to have a mindset where you're not afraid of that of losing it. I mean, good developers um, look to the upside, not the downside. The developers that last through the cycle are able to manage the downside. But unless you're enthusiastic and you're mentally wired to not be afraid of the downside, it's hard to succeed in this business.
1: And so, how have you <laughs> wired your brain to not be concerned by the downside?
0: Oh. Look, I don't think I I I haven't wired myself that way. I was born that way, and I and I think that's probably you know a characteristic. You either you either got it or you haven't. You're either a you're a warrior or you're not a warrior.
1: So you wouldn't describe yourself as a warrior?
0: No, definitely not. But, uh, glass is always half full, yes, <laughs> Justin. It must be the surfing. Exactly,
1: exactly. Uh, time in the ocean. You don't uh, tend to meet too many surfers who uh, are too highly strung.
0: No, no, exactly, exactly. Oh, look, you know, we have a philosophy around a balanced life and, you know, time in the water, um, you know, I snowboard and ski as well. You know, time in the mountains, time with family and time in the office. I mean, there's, there is enough time to do everything. you just got to manage manage your program and, um, as I say, you don't want to die wondering.
1: And just a a quick question, you've obviously grown your wealth along the way, are there any little toys or things that you've bought for yourself where you thought, oh, this is nice that I'm able to do this?
0: Look, not really. I mean, obviously surfboards and snowboards and things like that, but my two indulgences, if you like. one is family I've got seven children so uh, they keep me very busy um, and it's interesting it's it's a fun ride um, both up and down with all of those things so that occupies a lot of my time um, the second thing is because we're in the property business um, and in the residential business you know obviously I've got a nice house um, Nice place at the beach, which um, was a project. We have got a place up in Japan, which came out of um, in Nisiko in the snow, which came out of a resort we did there. So, um, I guess having nice properties um, has been an out direct outcome of being in the property business.
1: And you just touched on the size of your family. I mean, seven kids, you're running a big business. I mean, there'll be plenty of people out there listening who are juggling Families and kids, and trying to get their business going, and all the challenges of being a developer. I mean, what's your advice about how to strike that balance, or how do you make it work?
0: Look, I think the main way is to be organised. Um, so, like, uh, my EA runs my calendar, and we run a calendar six months out. So the first overlays that go into the calendar um, are school terms, school sporting events, because the schools publish those dates well ahead of time. Um, then there's all of the work meetings. So by really focusing on the diary and focusing on the calendar um, enables those things to occur. If, if I just did it in an ad hoc way of oh, what's on this week, it, it would be chaos. But um, I'm organised and I use the diary. Um, to really create the times to do all the things I want to do with family and
1: work, to be organised as a is the message. Yeah, well, I've got two kids That's myself, good. I find that enough of a juggle, I don't know how we'd go with seven. <laughs>
0: <laughs> can I have another five, Justin?
1: <laughs> uh, We'll save that discussion for another time, Don, after I've had a few drinks. <laughs> Alright, well Don, where can people find out more about you or about the business?
0: So uh, if you just um, look on the internet, Consolidated Properties, um, conspropgroup.com.au, um, just Google us, you'll find out about the business. If you want to see a little bit about me, yeah. have a look on my LinkedIn profile. Um, and, uh, and if anyone has something they want to talk about, just give me a ring. Um, the office number is 7 8350 Always welcome a conversation. Excellent.
1: Well, Don O'Rourke, thank you so much for being on the Property Developer Podcast. I'm very grateful to you for the time and insights that you've shared with us today.
0: My pleasure, Justin. Thank you very much for having me on your show. See you later.
1: Okay. Bye for now. Okay, there you go. Some great thoughts and ideas from a legendary property developer. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Don, as I certainly did. It goes to show what you can achieve with some ambition and determination. I got a lot out of my chat with Don, but here's three things that really stood out. 1. Clearly identify your development risks and mitigate them. Don was pretty clear around the importance of managing risk through the development cycle. He said that each stage has risks and mitigation measures. Here's some examples that Don suggested. 1. Planning risk? Mitigate that by getting a permit. 2. Delivery risk? Mitigate that by appointing a good builder on a fixed price contract. Three, take out risk. Get some pre-sales or pre-leases in place and make sure they stack up with professional valuations. And four, capital risk. Put in place measures to ensure you have debt and equity pieces in place. Don said that by identifying your risks and figuring out some measures to offset them, You can go into a project with confidence that you have thought strategically about what you are doing. 2. When times are good, property developers can get sloppy. Don said that the projects that didn't go well tended to start during buoyant periods when people get exuberant. So his advice was to stay laser focused on risk. Don't forget about sticking to your system and staying balanced in your assessment of projects. Don commented how often the big risk is in the tail of a project, so the last 20%, when you're trying to sell those final apartments or lease those remaining shops, can be the difference between success and failure. Don also suggested that you take heed of the lessons that you have paid for when things don't go according to plan, so you don't make them again in the future. 3. Build and trade versus build and hold. One thing Don said he would change if he could go back in time is to change the business strategy from build and trade to build and hold, due to the power of the rising market. So consider which strategy you are going to employ and figure out what you will need to achieve it. How much capital and equity will you need? Don's business now has a balance of both, so they do residential developments for build and sell, which fund the shopping centre projects for develop and hold. So give some thought to your strategy and how you can make it work. If you enjoyed that discussion with Don O'Rourke and you want to know a little more about strategic planning for your development business, then you may want to jump into the archives and take a listen to episode 44, where I speak with developer Byron Sarkar about what it means to be a strategic developer. And here's a little of what he said. Strategic planning. Gives us the foresight into possible challenges, setbacks, objections. Then we can look at different solutions for each of those. I'm sure you will get some value from that episode, so go back and check out episode 44. And don't forget to email me if you're interested in learning how to become a property developer, Justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com. And check out my Instagram and Facebook pages for my latest developing videos, photos, and news at Property Developer Podcast. I have posted the video of my trip to Soweto on the Facebook feed and is worth checking out to see how some people live. You can also find all the past episodes of the show at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com. So until next time, may all your development risks be mitigated.
0: You've been listening to the Property
1: Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.